Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, tonight, uh, if this is your first time with us at a Monday Thursday service, um, you may even wonder, well, what does that word mean? What's Monday mean? And it is, uh, it just simply means command. Um, just that, that's the simple definition of it. They're going to keep working on getting me out of the, the well here for a second, and, uh, and we'll get going here. But the, the Gospels tell us that on the Thursday night before Jesus was crucified, that he gathered with his disciples, and he celebrated the Jewish Passover. They did it in this borrowed upper room, and the reason we call it Monday Thursday, Command Thursday, if you would, is because during that time, Jesus gave two new commands. He gave the command to his disciples that they should love one another just as he had loved them. The other command was that using the elements of the Passover meal, the bread and the wine, Jesus commanded them to remember. He said, when you eat of this bread, you drink of this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And we're going to do that in a few moments. Now, shortly after uh, Jesus uh, celebrated that Passover meal, he took his disciples and he led them across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where I want us to kind of begin thinking about tonight because what I want us to do is I want us to kind of look into tomorrow and then come back to uh, the celebration of the Lord's Supper together to give it its, what I will call it, its fullness of meaning that we would remember that way that all that Jesus did. And I need to, to say this, I've said this before um, on this night, uh, I'm indebted to Dr. T.W. Hunt uh, he led a study called The Mind of Christ that uh, several of us went through. It was very uh, life-changing, and he talked about the crucifixion in a very compelling way. And so what I, I want you to do is you should have found a Ziploc bag uh, in your seat when you came in. There are some elements in there that we're going to, to use throughout the night, and so I'll, I'll tell you to, to refer to that and pull uh, something out uh, as we go along. But I want us to start in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus uh, praying. And the, the prayers that Jesus prayed were kind of unlike anything else we'd ever heard Jesus say before. If you've studied the Gospels and read the Gospels, you can, you can find these prayers uh, in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and Luke 22. But Jesus goes to the Father and he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And he was referring to this cup of suffering that he was about to, to have to drink from, if you would, symbolically. It was the cup of God's wrath being poured out on holy Jesus for unholy humanity. And Jesus was facing that. And his prayers should alert us all to something, that something very different is going on in Jesus' life and in the work that he came to do. The gospel writer Luke, who himself was a physician, is the only gospel writer that gives this detail, but he tell, gives us great insight into the trauma that Jesus was enduring. Luke writes uh, these words. He, he says, and, and being in uh, an agony, he prayed more earnestly, speaking of Jesus, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. See, whenever we experience a, a kind of trauma, sometimes the blood vessels just below the surface uh, of our skin kind of get activated. You, you see this happen when you, if you've ever seen somebody blush, uh, cheeks turn red, that kind of thing. And there are numerous times recorded in modern history when doctors have observed a severe enough trauma uh, in people's lives that it, it pushed to such a great extent that the blood vessels dilate and begin to press against the sweat glands. And if the pressure continues, those blood vessels will rupture, and the only place that that blood has to escape is out of the sweat glands. And so someone looks like they are sweating blood. And doctors call this condition hematidrosis. 
It's a condition in which after that occurs, the skin becomes extremely super sensitive. And the person who has sweat blood, uh, their skin is, is very painful to even be touched. And this was Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the apostle John tells us that after uh, that time in Gethsemane, Jesus was arrested and the first place that he was taken, he was taken to the house of, of Annas. And he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who at that time was the high priest. Annas himself was a, a Levitical priest. Uh, but he was probably functioned more like a, a political boss uh, in Jerusalem. He had lots of, of power and, and wielded it for his own purposes and pleasure. And Jesus standing before him, Annas had really two questions to ask Jesus. The first question that he asked Jesus is, who are your disciples? Who are, who are your followers? Now, apparently, Annas had come to uh, maybe hear rumors that some uh, among the Sanhedrin or other leaders of the Pharisees may have secretly started following Jesus, and he wanted to, to root them out. Now, even though Jesus' disciples had betrayed him, Jesus would never betray those who followed him, and he refused to answer. So Annas asked a, a second question, which is really an absurd question when you think about it. He asked Jesus, what do you teach? And the reason that was such a ludicrous question is because Jesus had just spent two days earlier all day long teaching publicly in the temple with priests bombarding him with all kinds of questions trying to trip him up. Questions like, uh, should we pay tax to Caesar? And of course, they, they couldn't trap the Lord. They, they, they couldn't do it. So to point out how hypocritical these questions were, Jesus asked a question of his own. He said, why do you ask me? Ask them. And he, I imagine Jesus pointed to all of the priests because they had been there that day. And he went on to say, they heard me. Ask them. And when he'd said that, one of the guards that had brought him from Gethsemane struck Jesus on the face. Now remember, that would have been the first of many strikes but don't forget about his skin and the sensitivity to it. And this would have brought on the first of many bruises and contusions. And just think about this for a moment. When was the last time that you heard uh, in the city of North Charleston uh, about a trial taking place at 2 o'clock in the morning? Well, that was what was going on. When was the last time you heard of a trial taking place in a, a private residence? This is, is what was going on. You don't have to be a Philadelphia lawyer to, to know how illegal all, all of this was. But Annas and the Sanhedrin uh, were in a, a, a difficult state. A circumstance had developed because Judas, who was going to be their chief witness against Jesus, had vanished. They didn't know where he was. And they needed him to carry out this prosecution of Jesus. See, the betrayal of Jesus kind of had a couple parts to it. First of all, uh, as a disciple, Judas would know the secret whereabouts of Jesus. They would, he would be able to find him quickly. And the, the priests were anxious, the Sanhedrin, they were anxious to get this whole unpleasant mess taken care of and, and, and have Jesus killed. But Judas not only would know the secret whereabouts uh, of Jesus, Judas was also function as the, the chief prosecutor. See, in, in Jewish law, there was no one who was appointed as the prosecuting attorney. Uh, no, they, they didn't have that. So Judas, whoever the, the chief witness would be, they would be the prosecutor. And now both their prosecutor and chief witness were gone, and they were, they were kind of, of stuck. And so caught without witnesses, they began trying to dig up false witnesses against Jesus. Now, because Jewish law is very, very fair, the, the, the interesting thing here is that every witness had to perfectly agree on every single detail. And they couldn't, of course. They had no time to get their stories straight because they had all been cut off guard with the disappearance of Judas. So finally, uh, one, one, one guy that was there uh, that was kind of witnessing, if you would, against Jesus. Remember that Jesus had said something uh, when he first did the, the cleansing of the temple, um, as recorded in John chapter 2. And he said that, that Jesus said that he would 
destroy the temple. Well, if you go to John chapter 2 and read it, you find out that what he said, Jesus said, he said, all of you destroy the temple, and I will raise it up in three days. He did not say he would destroy it. He said, you all destroy it, and I'll raise it up in three days. And the guy, when he was testifying against Jesus, witnessing against Jesus, he said he, said he could build it back in three days. Well, Jesus didn't use the word build. He used the word raise. This, this man could not keep kind of the story straight, if you would. And it was very important that Jesus had chosen to use that word. It's the same word that's used over 21 times in the New Testament, speaking about the resurrection of the Lord. Finally, because the witnesses could not agree, in desperation, the high priest did something legally he should have never done. He should not have even participated in the trial, but he stepped in. And Matthew chapter 26 records this. He, he says, I adjure you by the living God, which was basically saying to Jesus, I'm asking you to swear an oath. I'm asking you to take a covenant. He says, I, I, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Now, Jesus hadn't said anything up until that moment because there had been no accusation that was truth, and so he didn't have to address it. Only false charges had come up, and they, again, they didn't even agree. But now, this statement was not false. This statement was true. And so Jesus answered the priest. He said, yes, it is as you say, I am. Now, under Jewish law, as it relates to blasphemy and their interpretation of it, that would have been enough to condemn Jesus. But Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus wanted to make sure he was not misunderstood, that he was very, very clear. And so Jesus uh, quotes one of the most prophetic uh, passages, uh, messianic passages in the Old Testament from Daniel chapter 7. And Jesus said this, And after this you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, seated at the right hand of power. It was the clearest possible statement that he was the Messiah of God. Now, in Leviticus chapter 21, the law reads that a priest should never tear his robe, nor should anyone else tear the robe of a priest. But the priests themselves had begun to have a tradition rise up that when they heard blasphemy, they would tear their robes. The high priest would tear his robes. So many of the traditions of the, these Jewish priests that were supposedly keepers and protectors of the law actually violated the law that they said they held so dear. So Caiaphas, he tore his robe. And he said, we don't need further witnesses. We have it from his own mouth. What do you think? He said to the priest. And they condemned Jesus to death. Now, they, they didn't know what Jesus might do once they arrested him. They were concerned about his followers. They had heard that Jesus himself had seemed to have strange power, but now he had been in their power for quite some time, and nothing had happened. So in those circumstances, these, these priests kind of got drunk on their own power, so they called some guards in, and they decided to play a game with Jesus. And they blindfolded Jesus, and then the guards would walk up to Jesus, different ones at a time, and strike Jesus on the face again. And the priest would say to Jesus mockingly, if you're such a great prophet, why don't you, why don't you tell us who struck you? Don't forget about the sensitivity of, of Jesus' face. He would have begun to be black and blue on, on his face. Friends, truthfully, uh, doctors tell us that the most graphic paintings that we have, even uh, the, the, the passion of the Christ itself, does not fully give you clear uh, graphic imagery of all that Jesus endured. Now, even though their laws you know, said that a trial couldn't be held until after morning prayer, they went ahead in order to have some semblance of, of legality. They hurried a, a pre-dawn trial, and this time they didn't waste any time with this witness thing. They just went to Jesus and said, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? This time they wanted it on, on record, and I think Jesus wanted it on record too. And Jesus asked them a question. He said, if I answer that, you won't believe me, and if I ask you a question, you won't answer and so Jesus said, yes, I am. 
And then again he repeated, and after this, the Son of Man will be seated on the right hand of God at power. With that, they again, condemning to death uh, in, in a semi-legal sense. Now, every Roman providence would not allow any of the people that they had conquered to enact a death penalty. That had to be done by, by Rome itself. That was Roman law. But in Jerusalem, that wasn't going to be a problem because the priests and the Sanhedrins, the leaders, had cooperated with the ruling governors for over 18 years, and they kind of scratched each other's back, if you would. And an agreement had been made that they would basically do whatever the priest wanted. But Pilate shocked them. He asked the priests when they brought Jesus to him, what, what charge do you bring against this man? He wasn't supposed to ask that. He was just supposed to do their, their bidding. And so the priest kind of fumbled around and responded by saying, um, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him to you. But Pilate said, what's, what's the charge? And so they said, he, he perverts the nation. And basically that would be a charge of, of heresy in the, Jewish, in the Jewish faith, and it would mean nothing to this Roman Gentile. So they tried another charge. They, they said, he has forbidden that uh, we pay taxes to Caesar. And that was a lie. And somehow Pilate knew that they were lying. So they tried a third charge and said, he claims to be a king. Now that was serious. That was a very serious charge. And so Pilate commands the Roman guard to take Jesus and bring him into the, the, the Roman fortress. Pilate also lived in, in that fortress, so it was a Gentile residence. He knew these priests would not, would not follow him because then they would become unclean and, and defiled and they couldn't participate in the Passover celebration. So he went and brought Jesus in and he questioned Jesus and he asked Jesus, Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus asked Pilate, do you ask me this of your own initiative or has someone else told you this? Now see... Rome always kind of took their prisoners this way um, into something like this. And he knew, again, that the priest wouldn't, wouldn't go there. And so he enters this conversation uh, with, with Pilate, Jesus does. And Pilate responds, repeating the question, are you a king? It's your own people that have delivered you into my hands. And the Lord Jesus simply said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants, they would have fought to have me uh, delivered uh, from this. And Pilate replied, he said, so you are a king then. And Jesus told him, this is what I was born for, to bear witness to the truth. And then he said to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Pilate goes back to the priest and he says, I find no charge against this man. I find nothing in him. He's, he's innocent. But the priest said he causes trouble all over the nation, beginning up in Galilee. And the moment that Pilate heard that, he thought he had a plan. He thought he had this plan to kill two birds with one stone. It so happened that the ruler of Galilee was in town. His name's Herod Antipas. And Pilate and Antipas had been at odds for some time. And so this seemed like a good time to... Uh, kind of prop up Herod Antipas while at the same time getting this case off of his hands. And so Pilate sent Jesus to one of the most vile characters in, in the scriptures. The only man that we know of, only person we know of that Jesus met and never spoke a word to. He is the one who ultimately had John the Baptist killed but he was excited that Jesus was, was coming to him because he was really mystified with uh, supernatural powers and uh, those kinds of things. And he was hoping, because he had heard Jesus did some miracles, he was hoping to see one of those. But he didn't. And so he sends Jesus back to Pilate. And when he comes back to Pilate, Pilate had this opportunity um, while Jesus was away. And remember that uh, the Romans had many gods, lots of different uh, gods. And Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus. 
And she sent a message to Pilate, and she told him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, because I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. At, at that moment, Pilate decides, I am going to release Jesus. And he did have one more tool in his box uh, to, to try to pull out. Because uh, the Roman Empire tried to pacify uh, those that they uh, kind of ruled over, they had this kind of standing rule that when there was a local festival, they would release a political prisoner. And it was very obvious to Pilate that Jesus was just that. He was a political prisoner. He certainly wasn't a criminal. He hadn't done anything wrong. So Pilate asked the priest, hey, there's this custom. It's, you know, your, your Passover celebration. Uh, so Pilate gathered the crowd. He goes to the crowd with this information, and he said, who would you like me to release? And the crowd cries out. Now, Pilate thought he had the priest where he wanted him, but the priest had stirred the crowd up that day. And this crowd was not... Galileans, people from uh, where Jesus did most of his ministry, these were Judeans, and they really did never, never really believed in, in Jesus. And so they cried out, give us Barabbas. And so Pilate asked, well, what do I do with Jesus? And they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said, no, here's what I'll do. I'll scourge him, and then I'll let him go. And that might sound like an idle threat, but it wasn't. Because Roman historians give us great detail about Roman scourging. It had a, a, a nickname, if you would. Some of you know it. It was called the Roman half-death because so many times during the scourging, men died. Scourging was done by a Roman officer called a, a, a lictor. And lictors would strip their victims and they would uh, uh, tie them up to uh, a four-foot post in a certain way that would expose uh, all their back and, and their side. And they would strip them down. And then always at least two, sometimes three, sometimes four, these lictors would begin to flog the victim. And they, they had multiple lictors so that they wouldn't get tired and, and, and worn out. And the flogger that they used would look a little bit something like this. It would have a handle about a foot long. The, the tines would be a little bit longer. And wrapped inside these, they would tie knots. And in those knots, they would put pieces of lead or, or, or pieces of bone. And then one at a time they would take turns and they would seek to do as much damage as they could to bring welts on the back uh, of their victim. And then eventually when the welts got large enough, they would strike in such a way and twist their strikes so that flesh would begin to be pulled off. And in a short while, the victim's back would just look like shreds of, of, of skin. So the next time... When you hear or when you sing that song, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Remember what Jesus went through here and think about what we're saying. Don't let it just go through. Almost always, the victim of the flogging would faint, but not Jesus. He, 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 he wouldn't. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't go down. So they kept, they kept beating him. And remember, many men died from, from this beating. But Jesus didn't faint. And this almost never, ever happened. And they realized eventually that they were dealing with this kind of country bumpkin in their eyes from the, the, the northern districts of Galilee who claimed to be a king. So they thought this was funny. And they thought, we'll have some fun with it. And so they decided to put on a mock coronation. And one of the soldiers had this bright idea. And he ran to this place where they had this big fireplace uh, there in, um, in, in the praetorium. And what he did was he crafted, out of thorns that grew nearby, a crown of thorns. And he wove it and he put it on, on Jesus' head. And another found a robe, a discarded robe, a blanket, and they put it across the, 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 the sliced up back of Jesus. You know what happens to flesh that's bleeding when cloth is applied? It, it, it clots. 
that bleeding clot. And this was the man that was brought back to Pilate, that Pilate presented back to the priest, believing surely they will have mercy now. And Jesus said to the, I mean, and Pilate said to the priest about Jesus, behold the man. Pilate again questioned them. What, what is the charge that you're bringing to, uh, against him? And finally the priests admitted that we brought him to you because he claims to be the son of God. Well, that again startled Pilate. And so Pilate remembered his wife's dream. He had Jesus brought back into the fortress once again. And so he asked Jesus, Jesus, where are you from? Jesus knew there was no way that Pilate in a short span of time could be captured by the years of Jewish history that brought him to this moment. And Jesus just simply waited in silence and to which Pilate finally responds, you don't answer me. Don't you know I have authority to execute you if I want to? And that did bring a response from Jesus. And when you read the scriptures, it's amazing to me the, the clarity and presence of mind that Jesus had in this weakened condition. He was still alert. He was still mentally sharp. And Jesus said to Pilate, this is recorded in John 19, you have no authority if it weren't given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater guilt. And when he said that, Pilate once again determined to release him. And he walked back out to the priest to release him. And the priest realized what Pilate was about to do. Now, because of some earlier political affiliations, the priest knew that Pilate was actually kind of in trouble with the Caesar back in Rome. He was not well thought of. And so the priests played their trump card, if you would. And they said to Pilate, you claim to be a friend of Caesar. If you are a friend of Caesar, you would not let this man go because he claims to be a king. So they've turned to blackmail. Now by now, Pilate knew those priests well enough to know that they would carry out any threat that they made. So Pilate walks over to the seat of judgment, the bema, and he pronounced the sentence. And the sentence was, put the cross on the slave. Put the cross on the slave. Now, we, our natural minds it would be that it would put the slave on the cross. But it was put the cross uh, on the slave because the condemned person would be forced to carry the cross beam, uh, the patibulum, as it's known, through the street uh, on his way to crucifixion. And it was done uh, kind of as a way to deter others from standing uh, against, against Rome. And so what they did was they would have uh, ripped that cloak off the back of Jesus. And you can only imagine what that did to those lacerations, opening them back up. And they strapped this patibulum that estimates weigh somewhere between 100 and 125 pounds, lashed it to his arms and hands so he, he had no place to go with his arms. And then they would tie a rope around the waist of the victim, and they would pull them through the streets, and oftentimes they would, they would push back. They would try to, to not go forward because nobody wanted to endure Roman crucifixion. And all the lictor that was pulling them had to do was pull the rope forward and the weight of the patibulum would, would drive them ahead. Now remember, Jesus had lost lots of blood, starting back in Gethsemane where he sweat blood, then at Anna's house, and then at Caiaphas, and, and then uh, he had gone through the Roman half-death. And in his weakened condition, when the lictor pulled on the rope, Jesus fell. Because his hands and arms were lashed to the patibulum, he would have fallen on his face and driven those spikes in that crown of thorns deeper into his forehead. His suffering would have been incredible. And he fell. And the soldiers realized that if they're going to get this man up that hill so that they can crucify him, they're going to need some help. So one of the officers grabbed a North African pilgrim from the side of the road and made him carry the patibulum the rest of the way. And once they reached the site of the skull, there was a group of Jewish women there who had been given permission to 
provide a, a medication, uh, a drug that would deaden pain. But because Jesus knew he had to keep his mind cleared, he rejected it. And so they flung Jesus in the dirt and they stretched his arms out on that patibulum. And then they, they had spikes. Spikes that looked a little bit like this one. They were square in nature. They were very pointed at the end. They came to a very, this very sharp point. And they, were, they weren't driven through the palm. They were driven through the wrist because the wrist would support the weight of the body whereas the palm would not. That was the first reason for it. But the second reason that the Romans chose the wrist is because they would align the spike right next to the, the radial nerve, the medial nerve, excuse me. And in doing so, when the spike would touch the, the medial nerve, it would like send shock waves of, like their, their arm was on fire from the pain that it, it, it would cause. And the, the only way that the person could get relief would eventually be through death itself. The upright bar was called the stipes. And it, they were planted in the ground all around Jerusalem, but especially on this site called the place of the skull. Stipes were normally about seven feet tall, and at the top, they were actually sharpened more like a pencil. And the patibulum was, had a hollowed-out place, and it would, the soldiers would actually fit, using ropes and ladders, fit the patibulum down over the top of the sharpened stipes. And doctors tell us that the most painful moment in all of the crucifixion would come when they first lifted the body up, and the weight on that, that cross beam pulled the arms, and it would sever the medial nerve. And it would be like lightning hitting, hitting the arms. Uh, and the doctors tell us that we, we would not, we can't imagine the screams that would have been heard by, from the victims on those days. Now, if they didn't nail the feet, the victim would die quickly. They would die from asphyxiation because after hanging there suspended above the earth, eventually, uh, in short work really, uh, the chest muscles would uh, begin to cramp and, and, and seize and uh, paralysis would spread. And then eventually that would spread to the diaphragm, which is the breathing muscle, if you would. And so if they couldn't breathe, they would die of asphyxiation. So nails weren't necessary to bring about death. The nails had nothing to do with it. It was just another way for the Romans to be, to be cruel. And they had discovered that if they turned their legs to a certain angle, they could drive spikes into their feet. And then uh, that would cause the, the pain to increase because it was a, a place where the nerves uh, were very sensitive and came together in, in the feet. And the victim would find that they could, in order to keep from asphyxiating, they could use that, that spike as a cruel step to push themselves up and down to avoid some of those painful muscle cramps that, that were coming. They'd get some momentary relief and be able to breathe again. Now, this is why all of the statements from the cross are so very short. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 23, and there they crucified Jesus. Now, the priests weren't done with their work. They followed Jesus up the hill that day. They were there on, on that, that murder hill at, at, at Calvary. And they were mocking Jesus, saying, if you're the son of God, come down, and we'll believe in you. Now, we know he, he could have. We know that he could have called legions of angels. He could have emptied heaven of angels to come and, and, and take him down, but he didn't. He didn't. Because God so loved. Because God so loved you. And so Jesus from the cross prays this prayer, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And I don't know this for certain. But I believe that he was talking about me. He was talking about you, not only the ones that were there that day, but those of us who were gathered here today because we played a part in his crucifixion. 
Now, every time that Jesus would speak, he would have to push himself up on that cruel spike in his feet to overcome the paralysis so that he could once again speak. The second word that Jesus uttered wasn't about himself. It wasn't for himself. One of the realities that we know is that the Holy Spirit was there that day on that hill. And we know that he was present because he convicted, over a period of time, convicted one of the thieves that Jesus was being crucified next to. He slowly began to recognize the dignity and the holiness and the glory of the man on that center cross. And he turns to Jesus and he calls out and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus forced his way back up. And he said to this man, today you will be with me in paradise. The third word that is uttered from the cross, again, was not for himself. Instead, this time, he tells John to take care of his mother. Finally, about noon, the moment that Jesus dreaded came. The moment that he had prayed about in the garden came. The moment when that cup of all of God's wrath was poured out. When God made all of our selfishness and stubbornness, our gossip and lust and jealousy and hatred and greed and murderous thoughts, all of our sin, he made it to be on Jesus. All the unholiness, all the filth was on Jesus. The Bible says it this way, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin. And now Jesus was ugly. He was repulsive to look at. He was, he was hideous. And so God drew a deep darkness over the earth at that time. He wouldn't allow people to see his son hanging there that way. He pulls this darkness over uh, it would have shut things down in the city. Priests that were in the temple preparing for past sacrifices, they would have had to stop what they were doing. The marketplace would have had to shut down temporarily. The darkness was recorded as far away as Greece and Rome. And Jesus was absolutely alone. Utterly, utterly alone. This whole thing's a very horrible process it would deform the body after the, these number of, of hours that had taken place Jesus's body would have been engorged and swollen and, and bloated the prophet Isaiah tells, tells us that his face would have been so marred it would have been beyond recognition and that darkness the Bible tells us lasted for three hours and then God lifts the darkness to reveal this repugnant, horrible sight hanging on that center cross. And Jesus managed to push himself up, and he cried out this time. And this was about himself. He cried out, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? But it was almost over. Jesus had one, one declaration to make, something that only he could do, nobody else could do it, but Jesus couldn't speak. His body had, had wasted, he was severely dehydrated, and he needed to speak, and all he could do was whisper out one word, thirst. Thirst. One of the Roman soldiers heard this, grabbed a sponge and soaked it with some of a vinegar mixture and put the sponge up to Jesus' lips so he could moisten his lips. And Jesus took it this time. And he has to say what only he can say what his father was waiting on. It's the greatest word ever heard. It was tetelestai. It is finished. It's finished. I don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. We, we, we can't do it. Only Jesus could do it. And the reality of what Jesus does is he never does anything partially, halfway. He never taught halfway, he didn't heal halfway, and he didn't redeem halfway. Jesus was all in. And the sacrifice is finished because God is love. 
And it all comes together at the cross. And Jesus, Jesus had declared months earlier that no man takes my life. I lay it down myself. And so he did. He paid it. And so he gathered his strength once more. And he said these words, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And the gospel writer John tells us that at that moment Jesus bowed his head in this last act of submission to his father. And his heart stopped. His lungs stopped breathing. Just 24 hours earlier, Jesus had spoken these words to his followers. This is my body. This is my blood. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And so that's what I'm going to ask us to do right now. If you will pull out your Lord's Supper element, the cup, and I'm just going to give you a little hint on how to do this in a way that will be helpful. Once you hold it up, if you will take that little tab and just flick it down one time, just very gently, it will help you peel the first layer off. But I, I don't want you to do that yet. I just want you to hold this in your hands for a moment. Just want you to hold it in, in your hands for a moment. And Kyler and Gabby are coming back up, and they're going to share a song with us. And during the singing of this song, I'm going to, to ask you to do what the Scripture tells us to do before we come to share the Lord's Supper together. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so we want to take a moment to examine ourselves and let the Holy Spirit examine us and see whatever's in us that we may need to, to deal with. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, we come at this moment in this service to remember. And we want to remember God with pure hearts and clean minds. So Holy Spirit, we come asking you to search us and know our hearts and point out any evil way in us that we might confess it to you. We bring ourselves to you now, seeking to be made holy by you, Jesus, as we know we have been. But we want to remove anything that keeps us from being filled by you, Holy Spirit. We want to empty ourselves of ourselves now before we come to your table, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
If you would, I take your elements now. Pull out the little wafer, if you would. The Bible tells us that on the night before that suffering that we've spoken about this evening and thought about, that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you're ready, the, the cup. In the same way, the Bible tells us that Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, we, we thank you. We come remembering. We come praising you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Tonight, as we close our service, we want to do that by participating, if you would, in a, a very personal acknowledgement that my sin, that, that your sin, that our sin, put Jesus on the cross. And to also remind ourselves as we do it that he chose to endure everything that we talked about because of his great love for you he took our sin in his body on the cross and so we want to close tonight in this opportunity to acknowledge our debt to acknowledge our thanks to acknowledge our worship in the context of his suffering so in that little ziploc bag there's a piece of paper and there's a pencil and in just a moment, after you've had maybe a moment to reflect on his sacrifice again, maybe you just want to write on that piece of paper your name. 
And maybe you want to write your name and, and my sin. Or maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit has already spoken to you about something a moment ago that you just need to make right with the Lord. And maybe you want to come and bring it and nail it to the cross and walk away from it and, and leave it there. And then exit quietly. But be sure to come back on Sunday. Because the better half of the story is there. Not only did Jesus die, but he conquered this thing called death through paying it all. But tonight before we leave, we want to reflect. Maybe grieve over our own sin. But then thankfully, thank God, we get to leave it at the cross. I've asked Dean Enfinger if he would come and, and lead us in our closing prayer. And then when Dean is finished, you come. Pray with me. Jesus, we come remembering the insults and mockings you took. We remember the cruel rejection and false accusations you endured. We remember the shame you bore. We remember the beatings you took, the thorns that pierced your brow, the nails that tore through your hands and feet, the suffering you endured for us. Jesus, we remember the public shame that you bore, the assault and humiliation you suffered by being stripped and hung bare before the world. We remember how your humanity was diminished as your body was exposed by those who gambled away your dignity. We remember that while on the cross, that Father God placed on you, Jesus, all of our sin. We remember that you hung there between heaven and earth, that for the first time you felt utterly alone and forsaken by your Father. We remember and once again confess that it was our sin, that it was my sin that put you on that cross. Now, as we approach the cross, we come remembering. We come to thank you and worship you now as we bring ourselves and our sin once more to you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.